You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, welcome back to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. This is Abram, and uh, we're so excited about this next episode. Uh, This episode we had on Mario Sakura. Mario is a fascinating guy. You're going to find out here really soon. He's an executive coach and a consultant, and he's been in the Enneagram world for 20-plus years teaching the Enneagram to um, people in business. He's got some very different approaches to the Enneagram, especially within the, the realm of the instincts. So what would you guys think of this episode? Yeah, I thought it was great. You know, we haven't done a lot uh, with the Enneagram in the corporate or business space, and that's Mario's world, so I thought it was great. He has a way of simplifying the Enneagram, I think, uh, without diluting it hmm. in, in a way that I think is really interesting and fresh and presentable. So I think this is a, a nice change of pace from some of what we've done in the past with uh, the podcast. Yeah, so this is this is a two-parter. It just kind Our of... First. That's yeah, right. our first two-parter, first. and and we will be having more of these. Um, the more the more guests we have on, it's just things just start going, and then two hours go by, and we're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I I really enjoyed getting to talk with Mario, one of one of the premier enneagram teachers out there. He's um, a legend. Really, fr- yeah, really friendly dude. Love his different take on things, uh, and and yet he's holding it so loosely. He's yeah. holding it. Uh, with respect to other, to other schools, and just he's like, this is this is just what, this is what's helpful for me and how I teach and and my clients, and, and there's no need to uh, get all up and up in arms about it. So, because he does have some uh, takes on the enneagram that others may not agree with or yeah. haven't he, agreed with. Yeah, some some enneagram her- heresy in there. Yeah, yeah, maybe <laughs> he kind of pointed out that he's been branded a heretic before. Well, we we just we just love we love our enneagram heretics. It's it's great. We just had Jerome Lubba on who flipped the enneagram upside down. So you know, yeah, no talk about heresy. <laughs> yeah, that takes Jeez. the symbol to a different perspective. Yeah. Oh man. Also, one of the things I really loved about this these episodes is that he really kind of gives us the whole entire overview of his approach, his understanding and take on the Enneagram, which is a which is a very different one. But I would also say something that's really exciting is that he addresses some things that I don't believe are anywhere on the podcasting world that's uh, that the Enneagram is addressing right now. It's really, really fresh. It's really, really new. And I, it's not, it's not, you can't find this stuff anywhere. So yeah. we're really excited to share this with y'all. Uh, and yeah, without further ado, this is Mario Sakura. Well, Mario, welcome to the podcast. Uh, we're really, really excited to have you, man. Thank you so much for being here with us. Seth, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm really excited to, to join you guys. Uh, um, I, I've been listening to your podcast, and I think you guys are really doing exceptional work. Oh, thank thank you. you. Means a lot. Means a lot. So um, for starters, man, how, how have you been amidst the everything in the world? You know, COVID, the new year. Uh, h- how's it been? navigating, if you will. I already see what I already did there. there you How's go. it been navigating? You flip that in. You're, you're sucking up right from the get go. Right? Right. I got it. I get how this podcast. Yeah. Went okay. I love it. Well, Hey, look, um, um, you know, like everybody else, I am spending a whole lot of time in my basement and trying to interact <laughs> with the world through uh, video screens and, you know, telephones and all that sort of thing. Good news is, you know, everybody's healthy, happy, you know, the family's doing good. I will say that for me, if we get back to this idea of navigating, you know, one of the, the really fortunate things that um, I've been able to do thanks to my work is to travel a lot. You know, I've been to mm-hmm. 25, 30 countries to teach the Enneagram and work with business clients. And even though sometimes traveling is not a lot of fun, I miss it. Oh, <laughs> I, man. Say, I, I miss getting on an airplane. Yeah. yeah. I bet. Yeah. I bet. I well, have four boys at home, so that makes it even more you know, <laughs> of a desire to, to get on an airplane sometimes. Wow. Wow. I can't imagine. Well, one thing we'd, we'd love to get right into um, is to just hear about your Enneagram story. You know, how and when you found the Enneagram or when the Enneagram found you, however you like to name yeah. that. But also yeah. just as well as what you do with the Enneagram in the world today. 
So I was introduced to the Enneagram in 1994 by the uh, co-author of my first book, uh, Bob Talon. Mm. Um, uh, him and his brother had just, I think, either just gotten back or were just about to go to the first uh, Enneagram conference in Stanford, out of which the uh, IEA conference grew. And to my knowledge, they were the mm. first guys to start using the Enneagram in business, uh, at least publicly, right? So I had been, I was actually in, uh, my background was in publishing, corporate communications and training and development. And I was familiar with lots of um, different, any, I'm sorry, different personality models, Myers-Briggs, DISC, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, even though I was familiar with them, none of them had ever really grabbed my attention that much. Mm-hmm. And they recommended to me uh, Don Riso's uh, book. It was just Don at the time. This is before oh, yeah. us. I helped him with the, uh, the, uh, the, the co-authoring. I actually picked up a copy of Personality Types in the bookstore at the Market East train station in Philadelphia. And they had suggested to me I might want to take a look at the chapter on the type eight, right? So I, I sat down, I'm waiting for my train, and I uh, started reading. And I became so engrossed that I actually missed my train. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, how does this guy understand me so well, right? You know, and I started looking at the other two, you know, started asking myself, you know, is this the Barnum effect, right? I don't know if you guys are familiar yeah. with that term, you know, the, you know the, or the four effect where, you know, every horoscope sort of applies to you and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, so you start looking at the other chapters and, yeah, well, I'm definitely not that, right? And I'm mm. definitely not that one. So there must be something to this, right? Because not all of them resonate with me. So that became a fascination of mine, right? I mean, I just, like a lot of people, fell in love with the Enneagram. Uh, I'd been studying it with, you know, studying it for a number of years. Um, did the training with Don and Russ back in the mid late nineties. And then in 1997, I decided to leave the job I had and go into consulting. So I joined mm-hmm. a little consulting group. They were using a different personality model and, um, you know, I thought it was okay, but I kept saying to myself, you know, the Enneagram is just better than this, right? And I started using the Enneagram with my clients and after a year I left them and went out on my own and I've been kind of doing my own thing ever since. So I use the Enneagram in the work that I do in corporate environments. I do, you know, kind of some strict Enneagram training, like, you know, a day long or two day long workshop. Most of my work is executive coaching, right? So my clients Mm -hmm. don't hire me as an Enneagram person most Mm -hmm. of the time. They hire me as an executive coach or a Mm -hmm. consultant who just so happens to use the Enneagram. Okay. Mm Now, you know, you have to, you guys are young. So, um, but if you take yourselves back to 1997, the world was a different place back then, right? There weren't, the, the internet wasn't really a thing yet. Uh, there were a handful of Enneagram books. Yeah. Um, there were some audio tapes, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, so I would get my hand, you know, whatever I could get my hands on related to the Enneagram, I would just devour, right? So I had mm. every book that was out, all of Helen Palmer's books, all of Donna Russ's books. Uh, Drew, in your talk, you mentioned Hurley and Donson, you know, I mm-hmm. read their books and, uh, Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, even met Ted uh, a couple of times. He was a great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, you know, whatever I get my hands on, I wanted to know. Now, the problem I had is that, you know, the literature at the time was really not that suitable for the business world. Right? Sure. And part of that was just kind of the language itself, right? Uh, you know, you can't go into a, uh, a corporation and start talking about the lust type or the, uh, the gluttony <laughs> type, you know. And, yeah. You know, you, you can't say, well, the problem with you is that you're really psychologically unhealthy and you're level eight, right? I mean, you know, it doesn't work, right? So I started thinking about how can you language the Enneagram or how could I language the Enneagram Mm -hmm. in a way that would um, capture the spirit, capture the intent, capture the content, but still appeal to my audience, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Now, it wasn't just the language, however, right? I mean, um, one of the things I found when you work with a corporate audience, you're working with a lot of really aggressive, smart, uh, confident people. And when they smell BS, 
they pointed <laughs> out, right? I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, it, I, I consider it a rugged environment, right? So if you think about testing a product, uh, uh, you know, my Enneagram had to be uh, suitable for a rugged environment, meaning you could pull on it, you could twist it, you could, you know, challenge it and still get the results, right? Not kind of, uh, it wouldn't break down. Yeah. And I found that some of the ideas in the Enneagram literature broke down more quickly than others did, right? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't that they were wrong. It wasn't that they weren't useful. It's just that their utility was limited before they started bringing up more questions than they offered value for, right? So I started thinking about the Enneagram in terms of, okay, what, what elements of it, what ideas hold up in the environment that I work with and uh, which don't. Mm -hmm. And how can we language these things in a way that makes sense for my audience? Yeah. Can you give us a few examples of like things that you found that you found to be a little unnecessary perhaps? Yeah. <laughs> I was afraid. As soon as I said that, I said, oh man, they're going to ask you about that. You know? yeah. Bring it all. Bring it all. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, and again, I want to, I, I want to I, I be clear that these are not ideas that I necessarily, that, that I necessarily think are wrong or disagree with. They're mm -hmm. just ideas that I think can open up problems and uh, lead to confusion, you know, that's out of proportion with the value they had. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. honestly, one of those things is the idea of wings, right? Um, you know, I know wings, you, you know, I'm an eight. And so people say, well, he's an eight with a, a seven wing or an eight with a nine wing. I always found that to be an idea that wasn't particularly rugged, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I started noticing this as soon as I started doing uh, my corporate training, right? Uh, I'm sorry, my Enneagram training. I started to see that people... The thing that people tended to argue about in Enneagram trainings more than anything else is what somebody's wing was, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right. You know, no, you're not a four with a five wing, you're a four with a three wing, you know, yeah. and all this kind of stuff, right? <laughs> and so I start saying, okay, so that's a problem, right? And, mm -hmm. but what I started noticing in time is that there was actually a correlation between wing identification and subtype right uh, yeah. um okay yeah. and so you know i'm a big fan of occam right and i started saying okay well one of these variables doesn't need to be here <laughs> and so i kind of let go of the wings right mm. So that's one version. The idea of, you know, Riso and Hudson talk about the levels of health. Uh, great mm -hmm. stuff, right? I mean, really, it's it's great stuff. For me, talking, uh, first of all, I, I can't go into an organization and start talking about whether somebody's healthy or unhealthy. Sure. Right. Uh, you know, right. there's there's legal issues associated <laughs> with that, right? Yeah. So, and the other thing I noticed is that when I did, everybody said, well, you know, the problem we have is that I'm a healthy so-and-so and you're an unhealthy so-and-so uh, yeah. right mm. and so you know it's just kind of i don't know if you guys know anything about uh, spiral dynamics but oh, yeah. whenever sure, i hear yeah. somebody teaching spiral dynamics they always seem to be second tier right <laughs> <laughs> you know? yeah yeah so uh, you know that's so a brilliant me, niche joke by the way i think that's, yes. oh, man. <laughs> that's great <laughs> right way too inside huh? all right <laughs> no i love it that's why i love all it right. yeah <laughs> okay. So um, that was a part of it. Um, let's see. Uh, what else? Y you know, again, other things, you know, vices and virtues, for example. Mm. You know, again, great stuff. But sure. you can't go into an organization and, you know, say, you know, mm. well, again, you're the you're the sloth type. That, you know, that's that's the problem we have here. So right. that, mm. you're slothful, right? So, right. <laughs> um, so, so, so those are some of the ideas that come to mind. And this may be a bit of a rabbit trail, but I'm, I'm curious, especially in a corporate setting, how you not only personally kind of dance that line of really calling people out and also realizing that there's needs to be professional boundaries here. Like you can, you can really name a core wound of an employee, but is that, I don't know, is that something that they need to share with the rest of their uh, staff or whatever? Right, right. Yeah. So, so here's my way of thinking about the Enneagram. Okay. So when, when we think about the nine types, 
first of all, for me, it's not an ontological category, right? It's it's not this thing that you are. Uh, for me, it's a phenomenological character uh, category, right? It's you, you tend to do certain things. Okay, so my terminology tends to be verb oriented. Right. So, uh, so I'm what would be called an Enneagram type eight. And what that means is that my preferred strategy, the strategy that I non-consciously over rely on is striving to feel powerful. I'm not an eight. I'm somebody who overdoes striving to feel powerful and that causes certain problems and, you know, and it brings with it certain strengths. So a strategy is value neutral. It's not good. It's not bad. It's all in the application. Mm. So what I focus on with my clients is, are you using this strategy maladaptively or are you using it adaptively? Mm -hmm. And if the latter, how do we do more, less of that? And I'm sorry, if it's the former, how do we do less of that and more of the latter? Meaning, how do I do it less often in a maladaptive way? And, uh, you know, and then uh, do that. Now, Part of learning to use the strategy in an adaptive way, and we can talk about the awareness to action process that I use in a little bit, but mm-hmm. is to help people kind of go into the strategy and to start to, uh, first of all, not reject it, not to try to dismantle it in some way, but to broaden the definition of that strategy. And that's the work you start working with as if it were clay, that definition of your implicit definition of the strategy, so that eventually it starts to lose its hold on you. Mm. And the strategy can mean kind of whatever you want it to mean. And that allows you to be more flexible and more open in your behaviors and in your thoughts and in your attitudes. Okay. Mm. Now, when it comes to exploration, we can go as deep as we want, right? So for me, again, I'm an executive coach. I'm not a I'm, I'm not a psychotherapist or uh, anything like that. I am not there with my clients to you know try to help them heal their inner wounds or you know um, mm-hmm. uh, necessarily. I'm there to help make them more adaptive and more effective. Mm-hmm. Again, we can go as deeply yeah. as they want, right? Right. Um, What I find is that by taking this approach, people start to drop their defenses around it, right? They start to say, well, wait a minute. It's not because I'm a bad person. It's not because I'm damaged. It's not because I'm wounded in Mm -hmm. some way. It's because I have this narrative that keeps me trapped in a particular pattern of thinking, feeling, and doing. And if I work with that narrative, I can start to heal. I can start to grow. I can start to change in a way that feels like it's valuing who I am instead of rejecting who I am. Ooh, I see. It's good. Yeah, that is yeah. Good. good. Yeah. Uh, Mario, I want to, everything you just said, I think is a good transition to ask you about how you approach this idea of type. Because I think you mm-hmm. got into it there, when, especially yeah. in relation to talking about your own type as an emotional strategy, which is, uh, yeah. and so you have a particular kind of language and approach to the yeah. Enneagram types. And I wonder if you could explain that a little bit, if we could, then we could maybe have a conversation about it. Sure, sure. So uh, again, for me, it's about this strategy is, uh, you know, so again, we're not an ontological entity in that sense, right, with the types. Okay, I don't believe that there are these nine buckets and you fall into one of them. Uh, you know, if we think about biology, people tend to get caught up in the concept of species, right? Uh, this is a dog, this is a cat, this is a horse. When in reality, if you study biology, you understand that what they really talk about are populations. Mm-hmm. And a population is not a species. A species is an artificial concept to help people conceptualize, to simplify things, right? But a population is a group of uh, creatures that shares a number of similar characteristics, okay? But there's not a clear delineation or boundary between populations, okay? I think humans are the same. And when it comes to the Enneagram type, it's the same. So there is this kind of similarity. There is this sort of, um, you know, fundamental shared quality, right? That's how you define a population. Okay, they're all brown, 
for, for example, right? Or they all have four legs or whatever it is that your criteria is. And so for me, when it comes to the Enneagram types, my question is, which of the preferred strategy do they tend to over-rely on the most? Mm-hmm. And that then becomes how I think about them. There's somebody who does this. But for ease of use, I have to call them something, mm-hmm. right? And when you start trying to use this, um, you know, the politically correct version of Enneagram language around, you know, um, I'm a person who uses this as, you know, or, or, you know, how are we going to term it? <laughs> sure. It gets tricky after a while, right? It's hard to have a conversation with somebody it is, right, yeah. when you're being that careful. So there's a linguistic convenience to saying, well, Mario is a type A, okay? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we have predefined what we mean by that. Right. What does it mean? Well, he's the type of guy that tends to use this strategy more than the other eight. Mm, right? Sure. So so that's kind of the, the the overarching way that I think about it. It's the strategy. Now, so what are we saying there and what are these strategies? So so let me go back. So when Bob and I started writing Awareness to Action, I had a couple of frustrations with the existing Enneagram literature. This was, uh, I think, 2000 when we started the book. And one of it was when you would say somebody's an eight or a nine or a four or a three, what exactly were you saying, right? What did it mean to be a nine? We could say, well, nines are people who are like this and like this and like this and like this. And we could list some traits or we could say, well, nines are the slothful type, right? Mm, Yeah, okay. Uh, Or we could say that, you know, they have this fixation of indolence, you know, whatever language that we want to use there. That wasn't, it just wasn't working for me. Okay. I needed some way of saying, what do I mean when I say that somebody is type this or type that? I was reading Claudio Naranjo's book, Character and Neurosis, and he says at some point that the Enneagram types are adaptive strategies, right? They're ways of helping us interact with the world. And I thought, wow, I like that, right? I mean, that's, you know, that's that's good corporate language, right? You know, <laughs> talking about it as a strategy. Okay? Sure, sure. And, uh, you know, it resonated with me. It made sense. Now, he didn't say anything else about it in the book. He just kind of threw that term out there and then went on to something else. But I said, you know what? That's 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 the term I want to use, right? That's, that we're talking about strategies. And then I thought, okay, well, what is this strategy? What does that mean? And eventually we decided, I think in the, uh, in the paperback to uh, Awareness to Action, it still says striving to be yeah. something, right? I use striving to feel now. And in the uh, Kindle version and the uh, international versions, we went to striving to feel. Because for me, it is rooted in this affective tone that mm-hmm. we're trying to capture. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the attempt to capture that affective tone influences the way I think about the world. And the way I think about the world influences the way I behave in the world. And when we take this sort of causal chain and we take this, you know, gestalt of, you know, uh, qualities, that is what we refer to as the Enneagram type. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So good. Yeah. 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 And then, uh, so you said it, it, it works, especially in your corporate setting. I'm, I'm just curious yeah. as to how, like when you present this for the first time, that yeah. the, the types as adaptive strategies and use this language of striving to feel, how does it tend to land, you know, with your clients when you, when you introduce it to them? People get it. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, there's a lot of people who think, oh, man, the Enneagram must be so hard to present to corporate audiences. Right. And uh, or you must really need to dumb it down for these people. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know how many corporate executives you've met, but they're really smart people. Right. And uh, most of them have some sort of spiritual practice or most of them are interested in self-development in some way. So these are not dumb people that you have to dumb things down to. Right? Mm. So you can present an idea that's fairly sophisticated and they'll probably get it, but they, they can just relate to it. Right. When you talk to a, a nine and you say, you know, this is somebody who's striving to feel peaceful. Right. Well, nines get that. Okay. Um, you know, when you talk to a seven about striving to feel excited, oh yeah, I get that. I know yeah. what that means, right? I can relate to it. 
And, you know, it, it, we didn't just pick these words out of, out of thin air, too. I mean, Bob and I, when we uh, were writing the book, we, you know, decided this is the approach we were going to take. But then we spent two years refining each word, wow. right, to make sure that it fit all the people we knew who we would put into that population. Right. Mm-hmm. Mario, could you real quick, man, just give us an example of the striving to feel, what, what that what that is for each of the strategies? Sure, sure. So point one, we, we have it striving to feel perfect, okay? Um, and again, you know, this idea of perfectionism is something that we, you know, we're very familiar with in the Enneagram literature, but it's this, this idea of I, I want to feel like I am in accordance with what's expected. Mm -hmm. And I am doing things in accordance with what's expected. I've had uh, one say to me uh, that it's about feeling beyond reproach. Mm -hmm. Somebody can't point to them and say, you screwed this up or you did that wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's a point I want to make. You know, with these words, people will have kind of their own slight variations on it, right? Uh, Depending on the individual. And I'm not too hung up on that. Now, with point two, we call it striving to feel connected. Typically, when we talk about twos in the Enneagram literature, it's about being a helper. Hmm. Well, I've met twos that really aren't all that helpful. Um, (laughs) I mean, you know, um, it's it's really about being connected. It's about feeling connected to other people emotionally in some way. And there are all sorts of ways to do that, right? Here's where we get back to this idea of starts with a feeling that shapes our thinking, that shapes our behaviors. There's lots of ways I can connect to you. Right. Mm. And I can, you know, I can uh, be your friend. I can do things for you. I can manipulate you. I can threaten you, whatever it is. Okay. Uh, But it satisfies that fundamental need of a desire to feel connected. Mm. At point three, it's striving to feel outstanding. Okay. I I want to be recognized. I want to be valued. Okay. I want, uh, you know, one thing that threes uh, fall into is sort of seeing, uh, getting their own sense of self as it's reflected back from others. So if you see me being outstanding, then I know I am on track. Okay. And that's how all these things work, right? When we feel these things, it tells us we're on track and I can kind of just go back to being okay and being on autopilot. But it's when I feel like I am not this thing is when we start to get a little bit twisted up. So when the three doesn't feel outstanding, what do they do? They find ways to stand out. Right? They, you know, they push themselves, they drive themselves, they accomplish things, they draw attention to themselves, whatever it is. So they get back to that sort of equilibrium state of feeling outstanding. Point four is we call striving to feel unique. A lot of the literature about fours talks about creativity and uh, those sort of things. And a lot of fours are creative, but not all of them. And certainly not everybody who's creative is a four. What we have, you know, always thought is that creativity is a way to demonstrate my uniqueness, right? That's how I find out who I am. Okay? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, what makes me me and not you? Um, yeah. So mm-hmm. this is the thing fours are always wrestling with, okay? I am not this person. I am not that person. Sorry if you can hear my son overhead <laughs> playing game. I, I apologize for the noise in the background. No um, worries. No worries. Uh, so the four can get caught up not just in the, yeah, well, in these comparisons, right, but also of these contrasts, okay? I'm not my mother. I'm not my father. I'm not this person. I'm not that person. The five we call striving to feel detached. And uh, this is an interesting one for me. Uh, Detached can have a negative connotation to it, uh, more so than some of the others. But what we're saying here is that the five is looking to create an emotional buffer Mm -hmm. between themselves and the messiness of the world. One of my favorite ways of thinking about this is uh, the Star Trek movie you know, kind of the, the newest generation of Star Trek movies when Mr. Spock is being teased by, you know, the, the Vulcan kids, right? And he's trying to, you know, maintain that emotional distance until all of a sudden he just freaks out, starts beating the crap out of the other kid, right? Um, <laughs> and when you talk to fives, they relate to this. They say, you know, it's not that I don't have emotions, but I'm holding on to them, right? Mm, yeah. I'm trying to keep them inside and detach from that thing that's out there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, six is um, striving to feel secure. Some people call the six the loyalist, and I kind of get that. But again, I really don't find that sixes are any more loyal than anybody else, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, uh, you know, really what it's about is ensuring that bad things don't happen, right? Being on the lookout for 
what could go wrong and constantly preparing for it, whether it happens or not. Mm. So we think of this as striving to feel secure. Point seven, striving to feel excited. Um, this is always an interesting one to me because I, I live with three sevens. My wife uh, and two of my, my sons goodness. are Yeah, That's tell me party. about it. Yeah. Well, so let me tell you something. <laughs> Not really. Okay. Oh, and, you know, I don't know if any of you guys live with a seven. Now they're wonderful. I love sevens. I love my wife. I love my sons, but they're not always happy. Mm. Right. Yeah. And in fact, I find that sevens are one of the Enneagram types that are most prone to depression. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a huge amount of sort of perpetual dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. And what the sevens are looking for is stimulation, right? It's yeah, excitement. Right. So we call it striving to feel excited. You know, and, and one of their challenges is that the thing that they're looking for to excite them is not satisfying the underlying fundamental need that's happening there. And so they're disappointed. Let's see, point eight, we've talked about striving to feel powerful. Oddly enough, I get pushback from a lot of eights on that word. Uh, be, you know, and I mean, they're really just deluded and fooling themselves. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah. uh, <you> know. <laughs> but, but what I point out is that power is the capacity to produce a result. Hmm. It's the ability to get something wow. done. It's the ability to make an impact on their environment. And when you frame it that way to an eight, well, they say, well, of course, absolutely. Yeah. That's what they want. Uh, finally, point nine, striving to feel peaceful. Um, again, the it's we tend to think that nines are afraid of conflict, that they're um, they're avoidant, that they're not assertive. My experience with nines, I've worked with a lot of corporate executives at really high levels that are nines, right? But they do have this need to keep their inner state calm like the like the surface of a pond, right? And they can get very aggressive, very angry when somebody starts throwing rocks in that pond, right? And the, you know, the ripples start to build and so forth. So it's about this uh, uh, striving to feel peaceful that comes up. Damn straight. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's 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 an interesting and simple, but not simplistic approach. So, yeah, I I do do see a lot of resonance. Yeah, for me, you know, one of the big influences on me earlier in life was Zen Buddhism, and so I try to keep things, you know, simple and clear. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a saying in Zen that if you want to be enlightened, it's really easy. You just sit up straight and you breathe, and then in 20 years of hard work, you'll be enlightened. Um, <laughs> for me, my approach to the Enneagram, I, I, I don't want to mislead here, but in a lot of ways, it's very similar, right? Mm-hmm. Just keep coming back to this. How are you overdoing this? Right? Mm-hmm. How, right. are you, how are you letting this thing get you in trouble? And how can you recognize your narrative? How can you rewrite that narrative so that you can start interacting more adaptively with your environment? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for going around the horn for us. We don't do that all that often. So we kind of pick and choose when we want to do that. Sure. And, yeah. But that was really helpful. So thank you. Yeah, Great. Awesome. My pleasure. Uh, I also, I really love the whole concept of working with your strategy. In what ways have you found it to be helpful to frame it in that way? Yeah. Um, as you're working with different people. Sure. Sure. I wish I could claim, you know, huge original insight here. Um, but, you know, I mean, there is a whole school of thought around positive psychology, right? Sure. And I, I was very influenced by the work of you know people like Aaron Beck and the cognitive behavioral therapists, um, which was all about challenging narratives and uh, understanding mm-hmm. narratives. One of my favorite writers um, was the Zen teacher, Sunju Suzuki, right? Read, uh, wrote mm-hmm. uh, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And whenever he would do a Dharma talk, he would kind of go to the audience and he'd say, you know what? You're all just fine, just like you are. And Mm. you could all use a little bit of help. (laughs) Um, And what that did was it made people feel okay about themselves, but it also inspired them to want to grow. So when we, you know, and there's also a lot of literature that says, you know what, if, if you want to, reinforce bad behavior in children, keep telling them how bad they are. 
right? Mm -hmm. Because what do they start to do? They say, you know what? I'll show you how bad I am. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you start to get the opposite effect of what you want. And so I see so many people in not just the Enneagram world, but in other fields saying, no, you have to reject the ego. You have to, uh, you have to kill the ego. You have to um, battle with the ego. Mm -hmm. And all that does is make it stronger. Right. Yeah. It, it, you know, and it makes you feel like crap. And what happens when you feel like crap? You go watch television and eat cookies. Okay. <laughs> so, so in order to get people to want to do the work, you have to make them feel like they're okay. Right? Right. So, you know, again, I don't see these Enneagram types as some deficiency. I don't see them as some mark of sinfulness in some way. I see them as just ways that people try to get through life. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we either do it adaptively or maladaptively. Look, you got to pick a path. Okay. I, right. I had a friend, he was, he was, a, he was a minister and he was uh, expressing his frustration to me about Karen Armstrong's work. I don't know if oh, uh, you yeah. guys are familiar. Yeah. Okay. And he said, you know, he was a Lutheran minister and he said, you know, at some point you just got to pick a path. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, and, and I, thought, you know, and, and I thought, you know what? He's absolutely right. You know what I mean? You, you, we just can't, you know, you, you need a direction to take in order to be able to do your work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you might as well just stick with the strategy you have, but just work with it in a positive way and then gain freedom from it mm -hmm. through befriending it. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it leaves you alone for longer and longer periods of time. Right. And this is what we're striving for. How do we, how do we uh, increase that amount of time that our maladaptive versions of the strategy are leaving us alone? So good. Okay. Yeah, that is good. Now, Cause if now, I choose not right. to try not to be a, th a three or, or try to just completely shut off my three strategy, yes, <laughs> that tends to not work out very well for me. I've learned. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. And why should you, Drew? Right. Right. I right. mean, what's wrong with being a three? We need threes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you know, look, if I ran a company, I'd be hiring a bunch of them. Okay. Mm -hmm. But I would work with them to help them be the, you know, most adaptive version of that that they could be. Yeah, that's good. So the other thing I found, particularly in, in the uh, corporate work that I do, is when when you go at people that direction, and then you have to start working with the feedback that they get, because I always do 360 assessments of my clients, right? Get feedback on them from other coworkers. And some of it can be brutal, right? I mean, I've had, you know, real tough people break down and cry when they read the feedback that they get from their coworkers. And if they see this feedback in the context of, you know what, you're screwed up and you're doing all these things wrong, they tend to get defensive, right? But if you can say to them, like I often do, well, you know, I've worked with a lot of people like you who have your same personality style, and I see this feedback all the time for them. Mm -hmm. And it's the natural, it's the thing you would naturally expect from a three or from an eight and right. so mm -hmm. forth. So now that we know it, Let's work with it a little bit, mm -hmm. okay, and and go from there. And it, and you see people have this sort of feeling of self acceptance, right? Which is the starting point for any attempt to change. Mm -hmm. Befriending it to find freedom, love that. Exactly. So you know, um, Almas, uh, age yeah. Almas. Uh, uh, I forget where it might have been in one of his early uh, books on essence. He talks about clarifying the ego, mm. right? And, you know, we, you clarify butter, right? So you, you take butter and you heat it and you heat it and you heat it until all the impurities are cooked out of it. And then you just have this sort of clear essence of butter, you know, so to speak. Mm. And that's what we should be doing with the ego is clarifying it, you know, working with it, ridding it of the impurities, but not rejecting it. Right? Not trying to get rid of it. I always tell people, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be in the same room as the Dalai Lama twice. Right? Wow, now, wow. They, they were really, they were really big rooms. Okay, you know, it's not like we were hanging out, and, you know, <laughs> sipping tea or anything. Right? right. But, uh, you know, but I got to observe him, you know, over a total of about twelve hours. Right. And that guy's a seven. 
Okay. Mm. I mean, you know, people might, we could argue all day about what Enneagram type he is, but he struck me as a seven. And I always tell myself, and I tell people, if the Dalai Lama is still a seven, good luck getting rid of your ego. (laughs) Good luck getting rid of your personality type. Totally. doing good over there mario i'm doing great i'm having fun yeah, awesome <laughs> good because i'm having fun this is great yes good good you have a unique approach to the instincts and all of that and i know it's also a it's a point of confusion for some people just the concept alone but then they encounter different ways of uh defining it different words that are associated with it is it a stack is there only one order is there several <laughs> orders there's i mean there's some there's so many things that are uh, confusing about this topic so uh-huh. again where did you where did you begin the process of feeling like these things need to be relooked at and maybe new words put to them and and whatnot yeah yeah yeah, so first of all, thank you for using the word unique rather than heretical. You've been called a heretic, I take it, huh? Oh, oh boy, I oh, see boy. the uniqueness where yeah. I do, I do. Yeah. Um, so, um, so, yeah, uh, again, my initial Enneagram training was with, uh, with Don and Russ, and so I initially learned about the subtypes or the instincts. They call them instinctual variants. Um, I refer to them as instinctual biases. I'll, I'll explain why in a moment. But so I encountered it through them, and it was interesting to me. It was it helped me understand some things about myself that made more sense, knowing that I was, you know, to use their terminology, a social eight rather than a self eight or a, a, a sexual eight. But it wasn't something I paid a huge amount of attention to. Mm-hmm. One day I was having a conversation with a. Uh, a friend of mine who was a um, he was a doctor in the philosophy of science, and um, I we started talking about this idea of you know these three instincts, and he listens to me for a while and he says, "Oh, I got to stop you for a second here." He says, "This idea that we have three instincts just doesn't fit what we know through science. Mm-hmm. Humans are way more complicated than that, and there's really you know that's really not a." a term that people would use in the sciences. So you might want to look into this a bit, right? Well, I got this huge ego, so I was kind of embarrassed, right? You know, here I'm thinking I'm all smart, showing off my knowledge about something, oh, and I just got spanked, right? So um, so I started looking into the idea, and I started doing a lot of study. And, and I'll tell you, my thinking on this has evolved over time, as you know, one would hope it does. Um, but when I first started... Uh, working with this material, it was probably, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I would think. Just to give you a, 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 a little, little quick background story. So, mm-hmm. so uh, Don and Russ um, referred to the type eight as the challenger, right? And I like that term because it, you know, it, it, it fits, right? I don't think it's complete enough for my taste, but it, it fits. And mm-hmm. a, a real quick story, when before my wife and I got married, she decided she's going to move her cat into my house before she moves in, right? Uh, it was kind of like an experiment, you know, interesting, and, uh, interesting. The, the canary in the coal mine, right? Well, if the cat survives, maybe I'll survive, right? And uh, so, so the cat moves in and, you know, but I don't have any cat stuff, right? I don't have cat f- dishes. I don't have cat food. So we go to the store, uh, supermarket. Now, my wife is the kind of person who likes to sniff everything, touch everything, you know, once she goes into a supermarket. I have no time for that. I went right on to the cat food and cat dish aisle i see a a dish it's you know two connected dishes and it says on it unbreakable cat food dish okay now (laughs) for most people it would be okay that's fine but you know i saw that as a personal challenge right and so you know and i you know i put one hand on either side of that and i give it this big twist and it was not unbreakable. Okay? <laughs> and just as this loud crack is happening, my wife comes around the corner and sees me with two pieces of cat dish in my hands and, you know, and says, you know, what on earth are you doing? And I said, well, it said it's unbreakable. You know? and, 
she said, well, for cats, you know, and, uh, <laughs> so are you always susceptible to uh, marketing ploys? I, mean, I am. That's... I am. Yeah. It, it's, it's awful. Yeah. I've got all kinds of stuff in my head. Right? Oh, right? So, um, <laughs> anyway, so that is kind of my nature, right? Is to, is to pull on things and twist them and all that sort of thing. Right. So that's part of what I was doing with this, I, these ideas around the instincts. Okay. Mm. It's like, all right, something's not feeling right. I got to, I got to twist on this a bit. Okay. And see what happens. Mm. So I start doing some research, looking into biology, all these sort of things, you know, and we live in a time, particularly the last five, 10 years when there's a lot of great literature on cognitive science you know i mean it's become a cottage industry books by people like robert sapolsky you know is one of my mm-hmm. favorites and a couple of conclusions that i started to come to okay so number one this idea that there are these three discrete instincts really just you know is not really justifiable okay but there are there do seem to be three categories in some way mm. Okay, so what's really happening here? You know, and so what I, you know, what I decided on the way I decided to think about this is that they were clusters of evolutionary adaptations Mm, that co-presented. Okay, because the other thing I started to see was that there were behaviors in people who shared a instinctual variant or subtype or whatever you wanted to call it that were not talked about in the literature, but they did seem to be consistent. Mm For example, in what uh, I call transmitters, other people call the sexual or one-to-one subtype, I started noticing this need for display, okay? this need to uh, for attention, like the peacock spreading its feathers. And it didn't seem to be coming from, you know, the same kind of thing we might usually associate with an eight, you know, with a three, right, of, you know, the, the, the image consciousness and so forth. It, it was something different, right? It was something non-deliberate it was something very instinctual but people that i would put into this category of one-to-one or sexual had a tendency toward display in some way okay dress a little bit flashier talk a little bit more uh, a little more prone to jewelry leopard skin you know all these things that draw the eye much like the peacock's feathers do and it's a way of demonstrating reproductive fitness when it comes down to it. Okay. Now the key thing is it's not conscious. Okay. The transmitters don't get up in the morning and say, Hey, I want people to see me today. I want them to notice me. They just do things that feel right to them at an instinctual, deeply rooted level. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would share the story of my third son who is a transmitting nine. Mm -hmm. Now, once you start understanding that a transmitting nine is really, really different from what we think of as nines in general, they're more assertive, right? They're more attention-seeking, but they still have this nine aside, right? So there's this real contradiction about them. But I look at my son, and when he was two years old, this kid would go to the basket where we kept the snow boots, and he would pick out the most colorful pair. And he would put a hat on and he would get sunglasses and he would parade around the house in the hat and the sunglasses and the red boots and his diaper. Right Now, he was not, you know, he was not thinking, hey, the chicks are going to dig me. Right. He was not, you know, I don't know what he was thinking. He was two years old, but there was just this impulse to display. Hmm. Okay? So I started seeing these. Uh, uh, co-emergent behaviors in each of the biases. If we look at what's you know the, uh, other people think of as the self-preservation instinct, I started to realize that it wasn't just about preserving the self; it was about preserving in general, right? uh, holding on to things, uh, holding on to traditions, um, keeping memories and artifacts that have a significant meaning that make people feel comfortable and at home. Mm. Uh, my wife is a preserving seven. She takes pictures of everything, right? <laughs> if there's not a picture of it, it did not happen. Okay? And I started noticing, you know, I see a lot of preservers doing that. Right? They're mm. trying to preserve the memory. They're trying to preserve that feeling, whatever it is. Okay. So by noticing these different things, I started to say, okay, what terminology, what word captures this cluster of correlated 
impulses or behaviors that I see. Okay. And so I realized that self-preservation was, I felt that self-preservation was too limited um, and it didn't capture this idea of preserving in general. Mm-hmm. The social thing really troubled me, right? Because, you know, and again, it's a definition thing. It's it's about the, mm-hmm. the baggage mm-hmm. that we bring to words. But uh, people tend to think, you know, social means extroverted. It means wanting to talk to people, wanting to be around people, all of these things. As somebody who was in that category myself, I said, you know, that's really not me. Mm-hmm. I like people. I find people fascinating. But I want to watch them and understand them. I don't necessarily want to talk to them. <laughs> I like the concept of people. I like to observe people. I like to learn about people. But I don't want to be the guy sitting at the, you know, the, the, the lunch table holding court and telling stories. That has no interest to me. I want to observe mm-hmm. them. I want to learn about them. So I also started to wrestle with, from an evolutionary perspective, what end are these clusters of behaviors satisfying? And if you think about human nature from an evolutionary perspective, it's all about what things that we do, how do the things that we do increase the chances of passing our genes along? Okay, When we come down a level uh, and look at more proximate ends, it falls into these three categories. Well, I have to preserve the things that I need and preserve myself and preserve my children and preserve all these things until I'm old enough to reproduce and until my children are old enough to re- to viably reproduce my genes as well. Mm. When it comes to the navigating domain, how do I understand these group dynamics in a way that allows me to understand how this group works long enough so I don't get ostracized from it. Because as a member of a social species, if our ancestors were ostracized from the tribe, they had a problem and they probably didn't get to pass their genes along. Okay? So there was this. there's this element of us that has to understand the group so I can be a viable member of it. And then finally, this transmitting domain is all about how do I get the attention of the desirable other so that I can pass something along to that person, okay? Whether it's my genes, but whether it's my ideas, uh, some artifact I created, right? So I think that a lot of the creative impulse comes out of this transmitting uh, instinctual bias, right? So that's kind of a long-winded, you know, ex- explanation, totally. but uh, you know, but that's kind of the three clusters and sort of how I ended up. Does that make sense? Yeah, I really love that. Um, I and I, I, I don't know if you mentioned this earlier, but I. I noticed it. I've heard you say that these are all verbs as well, and you were very intentional with that. Yes, uh, yeah. So again, right? It's it's this idea of an ontological category versus what we do. Right. You know, one of the things that see what happens in the enneagram world. So th- this is a fascinating phenomenon. And I forget where I heard you guys talking about this. It might have been uh, in the uh, podcast you did with Leslie, but you were talking about people being mistyped, right? Mm. And so. A lot of times I'll have people come to my trainings and they'll say, you know, what you're describing, the way you're describing it, I'm transmitting, you know, based on the way you're describing it, but I'm not transmitting. I know I'm social. Right. Right. Hmm. Okay. But you're transmitting, right? (laughs) You know, I mean, (laughs) I don't care what you are. I care about what you're doing. Right. And -hmm. you can tell me you're a dog. Right. But if you quack. And if you have webbed feet, and if you have feathers, and if you like to swim in the pond, uh, you're a duck in my book, right? So by using verbs, I get out of any kind of arguments about, am I this or am I that? Mm -hmm. I just say to the person, watch what you do. Mm -hmm. Pay attention to what happens with you and deal with that, right? Because it doesn't matter what you quote unquote are. It matters what you're doing. Mm. And so this gets people out because people get, you know, once somebody gets their Enneagram badge, right, they don't want to give it up. You know, it's like, no, 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 I I got the mug, right? I mean, the mug says I'm a nine. (laughs) You know, I'm not going back now, right? Uh, You know, don't come and tell me I'm a five or anything like that. You know, so, you know, so I always tell people, look, I don't care what you are, but you tend to do a lot of transmitting. Mm. Okay. Mm. So is it causing you problems? If so, let's work with it. 
Yeah. Well, first off, I, I really resonate with um, one of your sons, the Transmitting Nine. Oh. I pretty, for as, as long as I can remember, I've fought this sort of contradictory desire yeah. inside to show style while not standing out too much. Yes. So this is the dilemma of the Transmitting Nine, yeah. right? It's, it's, you know, how do I show my feathers without looking like I'm showing off? Yep. Yep. That's right? it. Be- Okay, because you know, I got. I don't want to do. I don't want to look like a three. (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) So, (laughs) (laughs) so, but but you're exactly right. You know, it's it's this it's this need to be humble, torn with this need to let my freak flag fly. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, uh, it's, um, and, and it's a dilemma. And so this is why, this is why understanding the instinctual biases is so important. Mm. Right. Because I see a lot of people who are transmitting nines who get misidentified as threes, right. Who mistype themselves as threes, but they never really feel quite at home. Right. Something always feels a little bit off. Yeah. And, if you go by the conventional uh, descriptions of nines, they might feel that it doesn't quite fit either. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I, I'd love to get into maybe if we have enough time to sort of your perspective on some of the complexity and contradictory aspects of each of the domains. Because I think that's yeah. fascinating too, and even brings in some more nuance, which was really helpful mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. But an- another thing we'd love to get into is I know that you don't quite call it the stacking, but more of the order of domains because you've got I call it a call pattern it. of expression yes pattern yeah 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 it and is, you yeah. you do like the zone of enthusiasm the zone of i'd love it if you could hit, hit why the order goes the way they do you know yeah so <laughs> so so the why i don't know right <laughs> I, you, you know beats me Okay, so so here's the look. I, I I am probably the only Enneagram teacher who thinks this is the case. I've okay. read everything, and I think it's true. I really think it's true, yeah. and I love yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, look, I, I, I'm okay with that, right? <laughs> you know, look. So here here's here's the thing. I you know I do Enneagram trainings for you know Enneagram enthusiasts and you know coaches and all that sort of thing. But I make my living in the business world, okay? So I go in and I am measured on my effectiveness, okay? And in order to be effective in helping people grow, you have to, you know, you have to identify what's really happening, okay? And you have to say, Mm -hmm. hey, you know what? I've got this theory or I've got this belief, but I'm not getting the result I want. So I got to throw this belief out. Otherwise, these people are not going to hire me back again. Okay. Mm. So, so I live in a crucible where a lot of Enneagram teachers don't. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because, uh, you know, look, if I get you at a weekend retreat, I can send you out of there believing any damn thing I want you to believe. Right. And Mm -hmm. I can find a way to have you find anything in yourself that I want you to find. Okay. And if you say to yourself, well, I feel this, or I believe that about myself, you'll be able to find, you know, you'll be able to use a confirmation bias and you will find evidence that that fits the case. Mm. Okay. Mm. So all I can talk about is that in my experience of working with this stuff day in and day out in organizations for, you know, 15 plus years, this is what I've observed. Mm. Okay. And what I have observed is, you know, and again, I don't use the idea of stacking because it feels like, you know, putting three kind of independent boxes right. on top of each other, right? That's not how it works. We are complicated. We tend to, you know, rely on these biases in a particular way. They feel most comfortable with us. There are habitual patterns. They are the things that we have found have worked for us in life. And we tend to very often lean into or use the other two domains in ways that reinforce our sense of self in the pro- in the primary domain. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll give you an example. So I'm navigating a subtype. Okay? Uh, also known as real under- quick for people, social, right? The social, yeah. yes, right. Yeah. In my experience, for navigators, the transmitting domain expresses itself in a very particular way. 
I'm drawn to it, but conflicted about it. So we call it the zone of inner conflict. Okay? And so what that means is that in certain situations where I feel comfortable, where I know what my role and my identity are, I really like to transmit. Okay? I'm doing a lot of transmitting here. Okay? When I do trainings, people think I am a transmitter, but that's my job. Okay? Now, there's enough of it in me that I feel pretty good about it, and I can do it pretty well. But I have this conflict about it. Much like you, uh, Seth, when you start to think people might think you're a three, you kind of pull back a little bit. Mm. I do the same thing around transmitting, right? I say, uh-oh, you're going too far. Or because I'm navigating, I'm always wondering about, okay, am I showing too much, right? I don't want to go too far because one of the things that navigators are always thinking about is I need to show enough of myself so that people embrace me, but not so much that they reject me. Yeah. And these are some of the contradictions, right? Of, of exactly navigating. right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ex- exactly right. So, so it's kind of, you know, what do I reveal, right? What do I, what do I open up about and what do I not, right? So it's all about this sort of exposing and withholding dynamic and mm-hmm. where am I on that category? So when it comes to the transmitting stuff, Okay, you know, this is, you know, this is thin ice here, in a sense, right? I have to do it. Sometimes I like it. It feels cool to skate across this ice, but uh oh, did I go too far? And am I going to fall into the water? Okay. Now, when it comes to the preserving domain, in most every navigator I have encountered, the preserving domain holds very little interest. We call it a zone of indifference. Okay. Doesn't mean that I'm not good at it. You know, I can be good at certain elements of it. It's just that my attention simply doesn't go there. Mm-hmm. And so for me, you know, my wife is preserving. She's a preserving seven. She'll talk about, you know, all the nest stuff, right? And she'll say, well, what do you think about the color of the wall? And I'll say, I don't know. What color is it, right? And, you know, I mean, and I have to stop and think. And then, you know, she'll paint a room and I won't notice. Right. And that's, you know, some people might say that's a guy thing, but it's not really right. You know, other other guys would probably notice that I'm just indifferent to most things in the preserving domain. Now, what I have found, and I tie this back to the organization thing in years and years and years of doing 360 assessments of people, I see all the time where navigators have issues in the preserving domain. They get feedback that says, you know, great relationships, great political savvy, not good around process, not good about execution, not good about details, right? It comes up over and over and over and over again, okay? When you go to the transmitting domain, it is the... um, the preserving domain is that is the one that is this zone of inner conflict. Okay, so what happens is you get transmitters who talk a lot about preserving things. They talk about food. They talk about working out. They talk about uh, furniture. You know, uh, hotels. You know, whatever it is, they talk a fair amount. And they have this kind of conflict. You know, I really got to start exercising more. I really need to start eating better. I'm going to start doing it tomorrow. And, you know, or they can be kind of obsessive about their health, but they tend to have this anxiety in that domain. Okay. I don't really feel like I'm doing it right. You know, I don't really feel like I'm making enough money. I don't really feel like I'm on top of things like I need to be. Okay. So again, the conflict is in the preserving domain for them. And the navigating domain, is one is the one that is the zone of indifference. Go to a transmitter sometime and start saying, "Hey, you want to sit around and gossip about somebody?" They're usually just going to say, well, "Why would I want to do that?" I hate uh, that. You know, but there you go. Thank you. Right, right on cue. They they just it's see that's navigating stuff. Go to a navigator and say, "Hey, did you hear about so and so?" You know, they're going to say, "No, nah, tell me." Right. Uh, you know, it was the uh, who was it? Uh, Dorothy Parker, who said, if you don't have something nice to say about somebody, come sit next to me. Right? Um, you, know, you know, that's the navigator mindset, right? Tra- uh, clients that I coach who are transmitters, they tend to be they tend to be kind of fast risers because they're assertive, because they're ambitious, because they're charismatic and dynamic. But the thing that kills them is the organizational politics. Because they just don't hmm. read the the cues, they have no interest in it. 
they say, I, I don't, I don't care about that stuff. I just want to, you know, I just want to get the work done. I want to get going. I want to do this. I want to do that. Don't talk to me about this person or that person unless it really matters. Right? So it's this indifference to that navigating domain that can really be the Achilles heel of transmitters. Okay. For the preservers, again, what I have found is that in the workplace, they are people who are process-oriented, structured, who you know focus on getting things done, making sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. They can almost look like a one or a six sometimes. Right? They're okay with the navigating stuff. They want to talk to people. They want to hear some of the gossip. They want to know, you know what's happening. They, they, they can do it. But eventually they start to say, you know what, I really have other things to do or I'm getting tired of this. I want to go back home. You know, and so they start to get weary of the navigating stuff after a while. What they have almost no interest in is peacocking. Mm. Right? So the preservers are much more about, you know, I, you know, I'd really rather just kind of go home and chill out and watch Netflix and, you know, put my feet up. Right? Mm. So the way this translates into the business world. If I'm working with an executive and I know that they're a preserver, I know that they're not going to promote themselves effectively. If I'm working with a navigator, I know that they're going to struggle with process and structure. If I'm working with a transmitter, I know that they're going to struggle with the organizational politics. Mm. I've seen it countless times. I also see it in organizations at an organizational level because companies and teams will have an instinctual culture to them as well. Mm -hmm. And you'll start to see, okay, so you take this little manufacturing company that's all about process and structure. It's all about preserving, right? Nobody's ever going to come along and say, hey, that's a sexy business, right? That's a, you know, that's a flashy company. No, they're going to be about, you know, process, structure, cutting costs, saving money, you know, reducing waste, all these sort of things. Again, the why that happens, I don't know. Okay. I, you know, I don't know if it's a genetic thing. I don't know if, you know, there's some sort of, you know, universal archetype that has determined this or whatever. All I know is I see it over and over and over again. Right. And I have people who say to me, you know, even Enneagram teachers that I know pretty well who will say, yeah, well, that doesn't fit me because I'm this or I'm that and so forth. But, it does fit them, right? And when they think it doesn't, it's usually because either they don't understand the terminology the way I'm using it, or they're just not seeing themselves clearly. That's, mm. I think that's incredibly fascinating. This is one of my favorite things about you, Mario, is that you, you make this stuff so practical and precise. I, just the way that you even finished up there and said this is what it looks like for for people who, who preserve first. Well, they're going to be have a harder time you know, uh, transmitting themselves and showing. I just That's so precise and helpful. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time.